In Mark chapter 12, verse 17, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Today, Jesus plays a game of hot and cold with the teacher of the law. This is day 15. Welcome to the Journey Through Mark podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's word. Together, we'll discuss the context and meaning of each passage and how the book of Mark can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to day 15 of the Journey Through Mark podcast. Hey, we're wrapping up week three. How's it going for you guys? We're rolling along, moving fast. Doing good. I'm able to actually focus on it because I'm like at home and got some time. You can focus on it at home. You got two young boys. Yeah, I do. But, you know, after they go to bed or nap times. The time I get to focus on it is like before they wake up and after they go to sleep and then whatever moments I can find in the middle of the day. It's wild right now. It is a little bit different. A lot of us are keeping our kids home from school Mm -hmm. or working from home or trying to work from home. It's mildly successful, but, you know, it's fine. Here's my question for today. What's your favorite piece of clothing? Like a specific <laughs> shirt or like, yeah, like style a yeah, like what's, or brand? What's the thing that you or... wear that you're like, I look good in this. This makes me feel good. Ooh. Hmm. I'll go first. I just had this one sweatshirt. It's really just like my favorite sweatshirt. That's it's so comfortable. Thing. It looks like decent for a hoodie. Mm. It's not like, oh, look at that schlub. And it's just like <laughs> way too comfortable. So that's probably my favorite piece. It just makes me feel good. Yeah, I think I have an oversized denim shirt that I like to wear over things, under things, around my waist. Like it's just kind of anytime mm. I want to just be comfortable, I love putting that on. It's great. Brendan, yeah. it's got to be flannel, right? That is From not Iowa. flannel. <laughs> like Iowa raised flannel. I wear flannel because it is functional during the winter. Keeps you warm. <laughs> I like wearing gym clothes, which I'm Just wearing like, a lot of right so now where I'm at home. So, you know, it's <laughs> right. Don't have to dress a up. A lot of us are. Yeah. But like what? Just so you can work out at any point. I'm inspired, more inspired to work out. If I put the clothes on, if you then, don't have to change clothes. Well, yeah, it's like step one is done. There's nothing yes. holding me back. <laughs> that is actually like the worst part of working out is going from your work clothes to your gym clothes for a really? girl. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Or vice versa, I going from workout can't clothes speak to that yep. to work. But a clothes. good pair of gym shorts, love them. Well, I'm just glad that neither of you are wearing robes because Jesus has some words for people who flaunt their robes and like walk around flaunting their dress and stuff. But yes. We'll get more into that later. Brendan, why don't you get into the commentary for day fifteen for us? Day fifteen. To God, what is God's? In yesterday's reading, Jesus indicted Jerusalem's religious leaders for their corruption and failure to welcome him as God's son. In today's reading, representatives of these leaders confront Jesus with a number of questions in order to trap him. The first trap deals with the issue of Roman taxation. In Mark 12, 14, some asked Jesus, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? The imperial tax these questioners ask about was an unpopular Roman census tax. One rebel leader compared paying this tax to slavery. The sensitive nature of this yes or no question put Jesus in a difficult situation. A yes answer would show Jesus to be a Roman loyalist and undermine his Jewish following. A no answer would show him to be an insurrectionist and give the Romans a reason to execute him. Jesus responds to their question with a question. In Mark 12, 15 and 16, he says, Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Whose image is this and whose inscription? The denarius Jesus asked for is a silver coin used to pay the imperial tax. It depicted the current emperor, Tiberius Caesar, and would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. 
When the people affirm that Caesar's image is on the coin, Jesus then gives his final answer. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus's answer is brilliant for a couple of reasons. First, it is vague enough to be interpreted as a yes or no. He admits that Caesar should get what belongs to Caesar while not denying the view of Jewish nationalists that everything belongs to God. The ambiguity of the answer therefore allows Jesus to circumvent the trap. He can't be pinned into a yes or a no. Second, by drawing attention to the image on the coin, Jesus is able to teach a larger lesson. If coins should be given to Caesar because they bear the image of Caesar, then we should give our whole lives to God because we have been created in the image of God. This has been the call of Jesus all throughout the book of Mark. It's his call to the disciples, to the rich man, to Bartimaeus, and to every one of us. When Jesus asks us to follow him, he's asking us to deny ourselves and give everything to him our actions, our thoughts, our possessions, and our pursuits. He's given us the honor of bearing his image. We owe him our whole lives. For day 15, we're reading Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 44. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? 
the large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Melissa, you want to take us through our discussion questions for day 15? First question. In Mark 12, 29 through 30, Jesus affirms that the most important command is for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This command was first given in the covenantal context of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, where love has to do with loyalty rather than emotions. God wants our whole being to express loyal love to Him. How can you show Him more allegiance today with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Second question. In Mark 12, 31, Jesus affirms that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. How have you failed to love others as yourself recently? What step can you take to show self-sacrificial love in the coming days? Wow, I feel like more than ever, we're all pretty close to our neighbors because we're all at home. <laughs> that last discussion question might be the most relevant yeah, question that any that of us could ask, true. even more than we thought would be the case when we wrote this. For literally. sure. But that's a question for all of you to ponder on your own. I have a question. Brendan, what is a teacher of the law? What does that mean? Right. I thought these guys were like rabbis or something like that. What's a teacher of the law? Sure. Literally, it's the word scribe. If you look at the Greek behind this, it's one of the scribes came and heard them. You'll see actually other translations put it that way. The NIV and some other translations call this teachers of the law because the people who typically have this kind of training, they're people who've been trained in reading, writing, copying the law, things like this. And so there are people who are experts in the law who understand it well and in cases like this sometimes enter into debates. These guys come and they're trying to basically trap Jesus. And we saw it at the end of yesterday's reading. They're like, oh, we want to kill him. We don't like him because he tipped over our tables and ruined our temple system that we worked hard to create. And now he's saying that through parables, we are the worst <laughs> and we don't like him very much. And so we'll trap him. So that's what they do. They come to try to trap Jesus. And it's a pretty unique response that Jesus gives because he doesn't really give them an answer. Yeah, he answers their question with a question. You know, he says, why are you trying to trap me? He's talking to Pharisees and Herodians here. And what's important to note is those are different parties. So you got teachers of the law. We'll have one of these guys show up in a few minutes. Pharisees, we've seen them throughout the whole book. And then there are Herodians. It's a little bit difficult to pin down exactly who these guys are. But what's obvious is that they're political allies of Herod. And so they're people who support the Herods. When I say Herods, I mean people who are sons of Herod the Great, who have 
acquired this name yeah. for themselves, this sort of dynasty, you might say. And they support them, and therefore they're supporting Rome because Rome is the one who actually gave Herod that power. Because Herod himself wasn't a son of David. He wasn't part of the line of kings from Judah. He acquired this. Kind of like the Sadducees acquired the power in the temple. He acquired it through money and political savvy and things like that. Which doesn't happen anymore, thank goodness. Yeah, we don't do thank that. Thank goodness for democracy, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you have these two different groups that are working together now. Because Pharisees don't support Rome. Herodians, it seems that they probably do at least have a better relationship than the Pharisees would. They come and they ask this yes or no question. Should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, the imperial tax, this is different than the tax that Levi was collecting earlier. This is a tax that is imposed by the Romans on all people of this land. It's a census tax. And you know, if we read Josephus, this is a first century historian, he records one guy named Judas the Galilean who compared it to slavery. He says, if we pay this, we're admitting that we're slaves of Rome and we shouldn't pay this. And so they ask him this yes or no question, but Jesus sees right through it. You know, why are you trying to trap me? And I love what happens here. He asks for a coin and this coin probably would have had a picture of Tiberius Caesar on it. Tiberius was the emperor at this time. We have many of these. You can Google it. You'll see them for yourself. They're referred to Tiberius Caesar as the son of the divine Augustus. He's the son of God, which is so interesting because what has Mark been trying to proclaim about Jesus? Here's the true son of God. Tiberius claims to be the official son of God, but Mark's showing he's the real one. By the way, it's surprising they're carrying a coin with an image of Caesar on it. You know, if they're really religious leaders, they shouldn't have images of things and especially a coin that talks about someone who is the son of God. But nevertheless, they have it, they pull it out and Jesus turns the tables on them. He says, whose image is this and whose inscription? They admit that it's Caesar's. And then he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And the takeaway I kind of see here is the coin, it only has the value that we give it, right? There's no real inherent worth to it. And this is how money works in our world today. Money has the value that we ascribe to it. So he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar. Caesar made it, it has his image. You might as well just give it back to him, but give to God what is God's. And his whole point here is if the coin had the image of Caesar, well, you are a human who's been made in the image of God. This is Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible. God created humans in his image to represent him, to rule in his place. And he says, give Caesar that money. That's fine. But what I want from you is really everything you have. That's what I'm asking. So he turns the tables and teaches a bigger lesson. I think it does to like appeal to the people of God mindset too, that they are created in God's image. It's something mm. they hold really highly. Like if you're speaking to a crowd of people and they all are like, you know, what is true about us is that we're one, we're chosen people. And two, we are made in the image of God. Jesus knows what's important to them. Being able to speak to that mm-hmm. and give no answer, but every answer that you need all at the same time. Yep. It's really impressive the way that he does it. And that's why it says they're amazed at him. I mean, I'm amazed at him. You've yep. got to believe that God has a little bit of a sense of humor if he can. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, you that, get you get that. smack talk in the very next one. So he's trapped there. And then you have a different group. The Sadducees show up who they say there's no resurrection. They ask him a question about the resurrection because they don't believe this is real. So they ask a question about what's it going to be like in the afterlife when they don't really believe this. And notice what Jesus says in verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? That's first century wow. Jewish smack talk right there. These are the guys who should know it. And of course, I should add that they didn't read and believe that all of what we call the scriptures were the scriptures. For them, the scripture was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't really Mm. think too highly about the rest of it. But still, he's saying, you don't know the scriptures. This is smack talk. That's God's humor right there. 
Well, then you go to the next story and you got another teacher of the law and he comes up and he's like, hey, Jesus, I'm going <laughs> to test you about like little does he know his own commandments. So like what <laughs> what's going on here? They're like stated as like critical to the kingdom of God. But like, is Jesus quoting these from somewhere? Are they really testing him? Like what is going on in this exchange? Yeah. So this one, I really feel like I need to dig into it more, but it seems that he is someone who seems to be more neutral about Jesus. The others, it's very clear they're coming to trap him and put him in difficult situations. Yeah. This guy, as a teacher of law, he's just interested in talking about this stuff. And it's not as clear that he is trying to put Jesus in a difficult situation. He simply asked him. He's just always up for a good debate. He, he's, he's like, oh, they're debating over here. Exactly. Might as well hop in, it's, throw my hat in the ring. Exactly. This is what seminary students do on Friday nights. This is, their, <laughs> this is their fun. <laughs> so he asks, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus simply says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is the core affirmation of ancient Israel. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's part of something called the Shema, something that good faithful Jews would recite every single day and have it on their doorposts and things like this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the thing I'd want to really emphasize about this command is that the book of Deuteronomy, it's a covenantal text. It's a book that describes a covenant, an agreement, a treaty, you might say, that God made with ancient Israel. He had saved them. He had brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. And then he made them to be his people, to represent him, to kind of be like his image bearers for the world because the rest of the world had failed to represent him with the image. And so he raises them up as his image bearers, says, show the whole world what I'm like. And the first way I want you to do this is to love me. And in covenant contexts, we can see these from other ancient Near Eastern documents. We have other things that are written that are very much like this, where superior kings would make agreements with other kings, lesser kings, they would say, show your love to me and love there. It's not about mm -hmm. emotions. It's about loyalty. I want you as my subordinate to show your allegiance to me through love. And that's exactly yeah. what God is doing here in Deuteronomy. He's saying, I want you to express your allegiance. And the word I'm going to use to describe that is love. And Jesus picks this up. He says, this is the most important commandment. We need to give our allegiance to God. We need to love him, to give him everything we have with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with all our strength. One other thing I want to point out here is that in Mark, we got four things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In Deuteronomy 6, it's actually only three. It's kind of a complicated conversation how we ended up with four in Mark. But in Deuteronomy, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the word translated there is strength. It's an adverb that every other time it's used in the Bible, like other than one other place that quotes this verse, every other time this word is used, it simply means very much or exceedingly. Mm. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your very much, which is kind of a weird thing to say, which is why it's translated as strength. But the way I understand it is it's your everything you've gotten more. Love them with all your heart, with all your soul, and then all your very much, all your exceedingly, everything you've got and more. I want it all. 110%. 110%. So it's about allegiance. And then the second command, this isn't from the book of Deuteronomy. This is from the book of Leviticus chapter 19, but it's still in this covenantal context. The idea is you love your neighbor as yourself. And so you show allegiance to God and you show your loyalty to those who are among you. In the other gospels, it talks about how these sum up the law and the prophets. If mm -hmm. the Israelites would have lived this way, everything else falls in place. 
If you really love God with everything you've got, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, not as an inferior, not as someone who's second rate, if you really put them on your level and love them as yourself, well, the kingdom is going to look like the world that God wanted to create from the very beginning. And if we're going to live as Christians in this kingdom that Jesus has already established on earth and wants to continue to build through us, well, then this is what we got to do. We got to love him, but we also got to love others as ourselves. I think it's interesting too, because Jesus says these two things that reference back this covenantal context, things that like everybody knows. Yeah. So it's almost like they're about to debate, but then it's like, oh, here's a softball. Like you guys literally say this every day, all day. And then this guy, this teacher of the law starts to like basically teach everybody else. And I think it's just funny that Mark decided to leave this in. Like yeah. he has a whole paragraph here that he just left in from this guy because they're like, yeah, you know what? This guy gets it. Why did Mark include this? I don't know that I have that nailed down exactly, other than to say, here's a guy who actually seems to get it right. You have this context of all these people who are testing Jesus with questions. They don't seem to get it. And here's a guy who he's kind of flipping the tables on Jesus, not putting Jesus down, but like he's a scribe, he's a teacher. And he says, well said teacher. The man replied, you're right in saying, he's saying, you're right. You're a good teacher. (laughs) You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. That's part of the Shema. The Lord, your God, the Lord is one. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important, and this is key, than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And you think about what we read yesterday, you anticipate what we're going to read tomorrow when we enter Mark 13, where it talks about the destruction of the temple. Here he's already showing the commands, the things that God cares about most are not burnt offerings and sacrifices. What God cares about are these things. And if you get these things right, then you are near the heart of God. And that's why Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This guy who didn't even really know necessarily know who Jesus was, he says, you're actually really close to the kingdom of God because you're emphasizing, embracing the things that are most important, that are nearest and dearest to the heart of God. It's the hot and cold game. He's like, oh, warmer, warmer. You're very close. You're so close. Yeah, I think it's cool that he's actually giving credit to God. You know, all of these other teachers of the laws and Pharisees, they were all there just to try to trap Jesus. But I love that he actually gives credit back to him. He kind of sees, right? We've talked about all these people who see and don't see. And he's someone who like enters into a debate, but like he's not hard hearted against Jesus and he's not trying Mm. to manipulate him. And he's legitimately just trying to have a conversation that moves everybody together forward. I think that's what it models too, is like, this is what it looks like to question Jesus, like to put him to the test, but also to have like an open heart. Like these guys come with the intention of debating and they are so gracious, both of them to each Mm -hmm. other. And they actually walk away learning and understanding something more about each other because they don't have really hardened hearts. And it sets a really good example of how we should be as Christ followers, right? Like we should be able to learn and hear from each other in seeking what does the kingdom of God look like or what does faith look like or not even that. Take that out of it. What is somebody else's perspective or view on the world or politics or business or work or kids or any of that stuff? This is an example of how we can learn from an interaction that Jesus had with somebody that, you know, initially we've been led to believe that, oh no, another teacher of the law, this is going to be bad. But this is a good positive example of what it looks like. 
these people aren't inherently evil. You know I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think yeah. they oftentimes get a bad rap because the gospel writers, I mean, they emphasize a lot of the ways that Jesus sort of confronts and is in conflict with them. But the truth is Jesus is theologically closest to the Pharisees. What he believes, what he affirms, mm-hmm. we don't see all that. That's kind of behind the scenes, but he's actually really close to them. I mean, we talk about neighbors, right? Oftentimes the people that we fight with, the fiercest, that we have the greatest conflicts are actually the ones who are closest to us. It's not the people that are far off that we never see, Mm -hmm. we don't ever talk to. It's the people in our lives that we spend a lot of time with them. We know them well. We see a lot of things eye to eye, but it's those little things that because of our exposure to them come to the forefront and become the fiercest of debates between us. Well, I think that this passage really shows when you are having those debates, what are the things, those commonalities you can go back to? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like something that we agree with, with this teacher of the law, love God and love others. And that can be viewed as respect God or show your allegiance to God and show Mm -hmm. your allegiance to others. But love God and love others is a pretty clear thing that most of us can fall back to. So let's just all agree, maybe just you two and me, every time we get in a fight, (laughs) let's just like take a step back and be like, hey, you love God and love others. So yeah, yeah, cool. Okay. Like let's move on from there. And what I would add there and what I think is so important is again, when we redefine what love is biblically, especially in these contexts with these commands, it's not an emotion. It doesn't mean you have to have positive feelings about someone else. It doesn't mean you have to have positive feelings about God. And I think that's been a real struggle for a lot of people for a long time. It's like, when I'm upset with God, am I breaking this law? What do I do when I don't like this person? How do I love them if love is a feeling? And the point here is it's not a feeling. It's an act of devotion. It's an act of loyalty. It's an act of affirming the dignity and value of this other person and saying, I'm going to care for you, even if I don't like you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or agree with you. Yeah. So if we're supposed to change that view of love, of what that word means, we're supposed to show God allegiance and we're supposed to show our neighbors allegiance. If I've never done this before, if I've not grown up in faith and if I've not grown up in church, what does this really look like for me to like show him allegiance? What does that mean? I think this is actually what faith is. There's a new book that's come out recently that talks about salvation by allegiance alone. And it's been pretty influential and it's got me thinking a lot about the nature of faith and what it is. And oftentimes for us, it's this head thing, but it's when we come to put our faith in Jesus, what we're really doing is we're giving our allegiance to him and making him number one. And so that means that the other things we would give allegiance to in our lives don't have that primary spot. It means that we can still have jobs, we can still have money, we can still have phones, we can still have family, we can have all sorts of things, but those things don't come first. God comes first and those things all fall in place afterwards. And you think about this culture, this was a world where you're supposed to show your allegiance to Caesar. And he's saying, no, your allegiance belongs to God. And so when your allegiance belongs to God, then second, what follows is you live the way God would want you to live. And you live in the way of Jesus, which looks like loving others. And so I think that's as simple as it. I think practically it's admitting that I'm going to put God first. And the way that's expressed is by doing things like Jesus does, loving others as ourselves. So it's like when I eat dinner every night, And after we're done, I just want to go sit in the chair. It's saying, I'm going to be the first one to do the dishes. It's saying, you know, Rachel, I know you've had a hard night with our three-month-old. I'm going to let you go take a nap for the next 90 minutes. And even though I want to do my own thing, you can have a 90 minutes. Wow. You're so gracious, Brendan. (laughs) 90 whole minutes of a long time. That's just the REM cycle, right? But it's living that kind of life. And I definitely don't get it right a lot of the time, but I think that's what it looks like. 
want to go back to where you were saying, you know, if you're just joining us and you're just kind of exploring faith and hearing about God and Jesus for the first time, I think even just the simple act of just praying and talking to God and being real with Him in the way that you would talk to a friend or maybe somebody in your family, just letting Him know, hey, I'm confused. I don't know what to do with this, but I want to know you more. And I think maybe just opening that dialogue with God and just opening your heart to something that's bigger. And then the second part of that, I would say, is just like continue to follow us on the podcast because we're going to open scripture and we're going to walk through truths of who Jesus was and is today. And so I know you were just kind of asking about some first steps for someone who might just be just starting to open up to what faith is about. I really like that, this idea of like prayer, because I mean, you see it in today's reading, you've got this teacher of the law and he comes up and he's like, oh, look, at we're going to debate over here. And he is like very open. His heart is not very hard Mm -hmm. and he's able to ask questions and he's accepting of those answers, right? Yeah. And that's really hard when you're getting started and understanding a faith, any faith really, asking the questions and being okay when the answers aren't what you want them to be or they're not what you expected. And here's the thing I'll say about Jesus is he can take that. I mean, it shows in today's reading and really this week's reading, no matter what type of questioning or traps or confusion that might happen, Jesus can take that. Mm-hmm. Like you can throw whatever you want at him. He's going to take it back. And that's for me personally, in my faith background, that's been the reoccurring theme. I mean, I've had some real testing times where I question a lot of what we believe. Right. But the thing that always happens is Jesus provides an answer or he acts or there's a sign that you're not alone in this Mm -hmm. and that this is a normal thing to be doing. Doubt is something that can be used by God to help you fully understand your relationship with God. Yeah, I mean, he can totally handle those big questions that we have or even the things that we don't fully understand. And I love how you said that. So even today, like my thing is, what are those questions? What are those things that you would try to trap Jesus in? Because you can write them down. That's one thing that I like to do in notebooks that I have. And there's no organization to it. Like if it sounds like <laughs> I'm journaling, I'm not. Okay. Like, let's be real. What I do in notebooks that I have is if I have a question or confusion, I'll just write it down. And eventually I'll come back to him and be like, ah. Oh, That's funny when I thought that was a question. Now I have so much more understanding of what was going on and what's happening. So definitely write down and remember those questions because Jesus can handle it. What we're going to see in this next week of Mark, we're going into Holy Week, is Jesus is going to be questioned a lot. People are going to wonder who he is, what he's doing, and there's a lot that's about to go down. Jesus has been on this journey. He's finally entered Jerusalem and he's going to do the thing he's come here to do. And it's going to start off, interestingly, with a prediction about the destruction of the temple. But that's going to come full circle, actually, when we see him dying and giving himself on a cross. And to see how those threads are sort of tied together, I think is really interesting. This is what I like to call the enthronement week. It's where Jesus becomes the Messiah. It's where Jesus becomes king. And so just pay attention to the places and ways that Jesus is sort of anointed as king, that he's celebrated, even if he's mocked as king, and how people respond when they see him finally give himself up as king when he dies on the cross. It's all coming up next week. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for joining us for the Journey Through Mark podcast. If this is your first time, we're so glad you checked us out. 
check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and share your journey experience on social media with the hashtag willowjourney. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check out willowcreek.org. We'll see you tomorrow.